All right, good to see you here this morning at Berean. We are delighted to have you here for this morning worship service. And we are thankful not only for each one who is here, but we are thankful for the beautiful day we have outside. So someone said it gets to be spring this week. That'll be nice. That'll be nice to officially have winter behind us. When winter is really behind us, we'll just have to wait a few more days to find out, won't we? Anyway, let's take our Bibles and continue there in the book of Matthew chapter number 15. And I'd like to call out a couple of verses, two verses we're going to reread from what was just read uh, a moment ago. I'd like to reacquaint you with those, and we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll look into uh, God's Word this morning. Matthew chapter 15, let's notice uh, verse number 32, then we'll also read verse 33. Here the Bible says, Then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude, because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I will not send them away fasting, lest they faint in the way. And his disciples say unto him, Whence should we have so much bread in the wilderness as to fill so great a multitude? You'll find a question in that verse, so let's look at it one more time. The disciples say unto him, Whence, or our word would be where, where should we have so much bread in the wilderness as to fill so great a a multitude. We're going to ponder that in just a few minutes right now. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and we'll just ask God's blessing. Oh, gracious God in heaven, we do thank you for the privilege of another Lord's Day. We thank you, Father, for also for the gift of life. And we're so grateful that we can have not only physical life that you've given to us, but more importantly, spiritual life. We thank you for the new birth that we can have through Jesus Christ. And we thank you that as many as received him, to them gave he the authority to become the sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. And I pray, Father, that there will be no one here this morning in this service that has not believed on Jesus Christ unto salvation and been born again. Should it be the case that someone is outside of grace, someone just isn't sure, someone needs uh, the moving of the Holy Spirit to bring them to Jesus today, then, Lord, always our prayer is, is that you would make us winsome for the gospel's sake, that the gospel will be clear, the ministry and presence of the Holy Spirit such that men and women and boys and girls are always drawn to Jesus and called to Jesus when the word of God is proclaimed in this place. Whether it's here or in junior church or in Sunday school, may we always consider ourselves to be a lighthouse, desirous of seeing men and women and boys and girls come to faith in Christ, and then, Father, for each individual here today who is a Christian, who knows you as personal Savior, I just pray, Father, that you would use uh, the parts of the service today, many that we've already experienced as part of our worship, and that which will proceed now. May our hearts be open, Father. Uh, we know that that's what you desire of us now, as your word is, is given to us, that our hearts would be open so that you may minister there, and then that as we sense how you may be speaking to us, how you may be encouraging, admonishing uh, correcting whatever it is that you have for us today, that we are responsive to that and follow your leading in whatever you give to us. Again, Father, we think of those who can't be with us, encourage them at home where they are, those that may be providentially hindered. Help them to have a special blessing that will come from you even now, even as perhaps they contemplate the fact that they would rather be here if they could be but to know, Father, that you're with them in all things and just minister and bless, we pray in Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Well, we are continuing on with this morning series as God gives us opportunity to do so. They asked him this 
It's sort of the companion, as I've told you before, about penetrating questions of Jesus. We got to look at some of those, not all, that were a part of that series, but we got to look at some of them, and from that we were able to glean that Jesus asked a lot of questions, and never to no purpose. Someone recently was reminding me of something that I guess I've said many times from the pulpit, and that is God never wastes words. I don't really think God wastes anything. God's not stingy, but I don't think he wastes things. And uh, God doesn't ever waste words. That's true. So in these questions of Jesus, you have to sense, you have to know that Jesus had a point that he was trying to make. And that's, of course, what we get out of looking at those particular messages. Now the companion is, what about questions that people ask Jesus? Because many, many people ask Jesus questions. I, I, I find that encouraging, don't you? Because uh, for every question that someone asks, there's probably about 20 other people that want to ask the same thing and they're just afraid to. And uh, so sometimes uh, that's a good thing, that someone gets the courage and asks the question so that other people profit from it. Then finding out what that question revealed and how the Lord responded to it is often a great encouragement. The first couple of messages, we saw two questions that came from John the Baptist. I mentioned also by way of introduction that most of the questions that are asked of Jesus come from his disciples. That's you and me. So when we see those questions, um, we can identify with them, and they'll be a blessing to us, I think, as God uh, opens that up to us. Common, ordinary people ask Jesus questions, too. Also, his opponents asked him many questions. And, and we're going to see samplings of, of all of those. We're not going to look at every single one we could, but we'll look at a number of them. So this morning's question, did you catch the context from which that comes? It actually comes from the miracle of the feeding of the 4,000. You're aware of the fact that there are, of course, two miracles very much alike in the gospel stories. There's the feeding of the 5,000. The account of that in Matthew immediately proceeds in chapter 14. We have not read anything of that so far. And then in Matthew chapter 15, you have the account of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, here's an interesting piece of little gospel knowledge the feeding of the 5,000 is one of the few miracles that occurs in all four Gospels. We have an account of this in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What happens many times is you may have something occurring in all of the, what we call the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so-called because they tend to look at things in a similar way. Um, although each author has his purpose in writing, those Gospels tend to look at things in a somewhat similar way. John's Gospel is different. And uh, so it's constructed differently, its aim is different, and so many times John does not include the material that the Synoptic Gospels does, instead includes other material because, as you know, it's constructed around those seven signs that are meant to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we might have life through his name. So this question comes, this one here comes from the miracle of the feeding of the 4,000. If you looked at that verse again, the disciples ask this, Whence should we have so much bread in the wilderness as to fill so great a multitude? And I've sort of rephrased that just a little bit for our purposes this morning. Envision them saying something like this, if they were you and me and speaking like we might speak today. They might have put it something like this, Where will we get the bread? They've got a great conundrum on their hands. Jesus wants to feed 4,000 people, and later in the story, we're told that's the men. That doesn't mention the women and children. 
So you could do a little math and you could kind of figure, by the way, that was also true in the feeding of the 5,000. That same piece of information is given to us. So you could do a little math and figure how many people do you think are here? 10,000? I would say at least, maybe more. It just really depends. We can't know for sure, but I would say that's a fairly safe and a fairly conservative number, around 10,000 people. So it's from a human perspective, and as I said to you before, that to me is what is so encouraging about this is these guys just ask the same kinds of questions you or I might be prone to ask. Jesus says about feeding these people, not sending them away. They've continued now with him three days. He doesn't want to see them go away fasting lest they faint in the way. And they say, where are we going to get the bread? And so that's the question that we're going to be looking at this morning. Now, I'll tell you what I would like to do in the presentation of this. I'd like to point out to you that it's rather interesting to compare the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, and also to compare all the accounts. So you have two events, and then you have all the accounts. When you do this, I think you're going to find there's a great similarity between these stories. Much of it is very much the same, and we actually have a little bit of a hint in something we're going to look at later in Mark's Gospel to show us that there's a spiritual lesson that kind of weaves its way through. But in any case, what I want to do is I want to compare all the accounts of both events. We're not going to look at every verse. In a few cases, I'll just tell you what it says, and you can go home and look it up later if you want to. We do have to be conscious of time. Because when we do this, I think here's what, it, here's what at least happens for me. Here's what at least what this sermon is about this morning. We find what I will call an unexpected lesson in where the problem often lies when you and I are confronted with a daunting challenge. I have news for you. Life is full of them. It isn't all easy. Sometimes maybe you get a day when everything just falls into place. It just feels like the wind's always at your back. The breezes are balmy. The temperatures are nice. But it isn't always that way, right? Many times life brings along many challenges that just sort of bumfuzzle us. We don't know what we're going to do. We're like the disciples right here when they're confronted with what Jesus wants to do. And they just don't see how it's possible to do that. And they don't know how to respond where the problem lies when we are often confronted, or where it often lies when we are confronted with a daunting challenge. Do you find this true? I have found this to be true in life. You meet people and they often seem to fall into one of two categories. So not this group and this group, all right? But you could kind of ask yourself, all right, when he says this next, where do I fancy myself? You don't have to tell anybody. You don't have to tell me. It's just something kind of interesting to entertain in your own mind. There are people who look at a half-filled cup of water and they see it, some, as being half-full. And the other crew says, no, it's half-empty. It's a little bit of a different perspective, isn't it? A different way of looking at things. The way when you see a situation, it tends to strike you first. Some of it just has to do a little bit, I think, with the way we're put together. But on the other hand, sometimes God wants to change us. And so that's what we're going to look at a little bit this morning. By the way, you might be amused, as I was, with the story of a farmer who was sort of in the first group. He looked at that 
half full glass of water, and to him it was half full. He was a cheery type of an individual, optimistic, couldn't wait to greet each new day as it came, and his attitude was such that when a new day dawned, he might say something like this, good morning, Lord. And then he had a neighbor not too far from his farm, it was a, happened to be an, a, a woman, and she had kind of the other disposition. Instead of getting up in the morning and saying, good morning, Lord, she might get up in the morning and she might say, Lord, it's morning. So they were, as you could imagine, maybe a little bit of a trial to one another. Where he saw opportunity, she saw problems. Where he was satisfied, she was often discontented. So one bright morning, he said, look at the beautiful sky. Did you ever see such a glorious sunrise? And she said back to him, yes. But she said, if it stays hot like this, it'll probably scorch the crops. That particular afternoon, the Lord sent a shower along. And so his remark to her was, well, isn't this wonderful? God sent rain to give the corn a drink today. And she said, yes, but if it doesn't quit raining soon, we'll be sorry we didn't buy flood insurance for the crops. Well, the farmer was thinking he's got to get this problem with this lady fixed. And so he hits on an idea. He goes out and he buys a rather expensive dog. And the dog was expensive not only because of breeding and pedigree and so forth, but the, the dog was highly trained. And so he spoke to the woman and he said to her, he said, I got this dog. You've got to come see this dog. So they went down to the edge of the water and he had a stick and he took the stick and he chucked it out into the water. And he said to the dog, fetch. And the dog just, you know how they are when they're excited about something like this, just all that pent-up energy, and the dog just took off out there into the water, so eager to get to the stick that the, the dog hardly touched the water, just skimmed right across the top and got the stick and brought it back. He said to her, huh, what do you think of that? She said, not much of a dog, is he? Can't even swim. <laughs> well, there are folk like that. And once in a while, that does sort of grate on us. But I want us to take that humor and sort of poke a little fun at ourselves and maybe even take an honest look. Because when we see what this problem is, I think sometimes uh, it's a surprise to us to see the picture of ourselves that we get. Let's talk, first of all, in the message this morning about the human objections when we face a daunting challenge in life, what do you see? The problems or do you see something else? I'm not suggesting this morning that we do not have to realistically look at the challenge and face what the problems are. But by comparing these incidents and by comparing all the different accounts, I think you can come up with chiefly three. The first of these was that it was inconvenient. If you turn a page back to Matthew chapter 14 and verse 15, I like the way it's put here. Because here it says, in this is the feeding of the 5,000, of course, and we'll, we'll move back and forth just a little bit as we look at these things because they're kind of common elements. But it says here, and when it was evening, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desert place, and the time is now past. Send the multitude away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals or food. So... You'll find this as you start looking at the verses. Um, it's either referred to as a desert place or a wilderness. And, of course, those words kind of conjure up rather severe images in our minds. And 
Let me just say this to you. That's not quite what's involved in the word that's here in the original. It's basically just isolated. In other words, if you look down a little bit further, in fact, if you look uh, in verse 19, right there where we are, in fact, um, it says, and he commanded the multitude to sit down on the, what's the next word? Yeah, so don't, don't be necessarily thinking of this arid, hot, inhospitable, uh, filled with stones place. That'd be half the places in Pennsylvania, right? Filled with stones. So don't necessarily be thinking of it that way. Just think of it as they weren't just maybe right on the outskirts of town. They, they were in a place where it was suitable for Jesus to gather a multitude of people and people like this to sit down on the ground or on the grass and listen to him preach where he could minister to them. But they were where they were not, it wasn't convenient to just run out and buy food. Not only that, you have another telltale detail in this verse where it says that it was evening and the day was far spent. And the disciples are thinking to themselves, you know, this is just not the greatest time. This is just not the most convenient thing in the world. We're not only not situated where we can go and get the supplies that we're going to need to take care of this, but you know what? It's late in the day. It's time to call it quits. You ever kind of felt that way? And then this person with all this great spiritual enthusiasm for something they want to do sort of just gets on your nerves. Well, the next thing I find is, is that, or the next objection that I find them making is, is that there's not enough. Look at verse 17 in chapter 14. And they say unto him, we have but five loaves and two fish. And of course, the unspoken, they're, they're throwing up an objection, by the way. They're throwing up an objection. They're, they're basically saying that, really? You want to feed 5,000 men besides women and children, and here's what all we have is a boy's lunch. That's all we have here. If you look in chapter 15, verse 33, the way the question, as we've already looked at it, take note of this now, what they're really saying. There's not enough. They say here in the way the phrase is here, whence should we have so much? Do you see how that's just sort of laced into there? Do you realize how much bread this is going to take to accomplish what you've just laid before us, Master? Whence in the wilderness should we have so much bread, it says, to fill, and then do you notice they tuck this in, so great a multitude, so they throw the two problems out right there. So great a multitude is going to take a whole lot of bread. It's not enough. In John chapter 6, verse 9, you don't have to look over at that if you don't want to, but it's kind of interesting, again, how you can kind of sense the disciples throwing up these little objections like we so often do when a spiritual challenge is placed before us. We've always got our objections why we can't do this. In John chapter 6 and verse 9, there is a lad here, it says, which hath five barley loaves and two small fish. But then here's what Andrew says. But what are these among so many? Do you see how it's, it's just sort of meant to depreciate what is there? So there is the objection that it's inconvenient. There is the objection that we don't have enough. And then if I haven't heard this one enough times, if I had $5 for every time I'd heard it to retire now, is it's too expensive. 
Mark chapter 6, verse 37 is kind of interesting, and this will take us to something in Mark's account. So if you have nimble fingers, you can turn. If not, I'll just read uh, this for you. But it says here in verse 37, He answered and said unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they said unto him, Shall we go and buy 200 penny worth of bread and give them to eat? So when you read a commentary or you do a little study on this because you're thinking to yourself, okay, how much is 200 penny worth? And it uses the word denarius or the plural denarii. So what do we know about that? The denarius was essentially what was the average laborer's wage for the day. This is a lot. This is too expensive because the inference in their question is we don't have that kind of money. Right? I mean, we know that uh, Jesus had people. Uh, we don't have a lot of details on this, but we know from different references. Remember, Judas had the what? Bag. The bag. So th- they did have funds that people gave gifts and such as that that they used to have uh, to uh, necessary things. But do you really think they were carrying around that kind of money? Doubtful. Doubtful. I think that this is an objection that is being raised. In fact, uh, if you look again again at the account over in John, John chapter 6 and verse 7, Philip is the one who's speaking now, and Philip says this. Philip says, 200 penny worth, same deal. 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may take even a little. Uh, Peter, uh, Philip says, you've got this incredible amount of, of money that it would take just for each of them to have a bite, much less to be satisfied or to be filled. Always objections that we seem to be able to come up with. And I say to you this morning, not having a clue. You, <laughs> you know, this is one thing that's kind of nice for me. I mean, I, you, my knowledge is limited, so you can't say I'm preaching at you. But... How many times ask yourself this question? Have we heard this, these objections? Have we heard these objections in the Lord's work? Over and over and over again, it seems like every time we have something that we feel God is leading us to do, someone has one of these objections. And of course, it's... Back to what I said at the early part of the message. For some people, the cup is always half empty. For some people, the cup is half full. And it's sort of the nature of people. It's sort of the nature of folks. And we have to be compassionate towards one another. We can't realize that... We have to always realize that sometimes folks are genuinely struggling... And we can't just afford to diss these people. We have to somehow win them over. But I still want to ask that question. How many times have we heard these objections in the Lord's work? And I want to say to you this morning, the real question becomes, are they sincere? Or are they self-serving? Now, the fact that they're sincere still doesn't mean they're right but it sure makes it a little easier to cope with. What is really not good is when these questions are raised to sound intelligent, but in reality just to sort of throw up another stumbling block or another obstacle because 
the objections are just more self-serving than anything else. I have no idea whether this was true or not, so I make no particular judgment on it. I know how it struck me at the time, but probably the largest project, well, the largest project that we were ever involved in, probably to date for the church in Huntington, was when we built what we called the Activity Center. It turned out to be over a million-dollar project. And so, obviously, that was something we had to work through. We had people in the church that weren't real thrilled with having to borrow money for, for it and that type of thing. We watched this over time, though, and we watched it as God brought us in first $100,000, then $200,000. We had people who were skeptical at first, and finally it just seemed like the Lord uh, gave me a direction in the thing because I didn't feel like it was worth having a fight over. And so I felt absolutely, completely confident in my heart that God wanted us to do this. But I wasn't going to wreck the church over it. And so I just decided, well, we'll, we'll just wait. God will, God will convince people and God will win hearts, at least the, the ones that really need to be won over to this. So we got to a certain place and then we, just, we had a fund and we just let the money keep coming in. And we talked to people about what the project would be and what it would accomplish for us. And we showed all sorts of information to people, and we just let the money keep coming in, and the money keep coming in. And I'll tell you, it was one of the sweetest days that I can ever remember when I came to a deacon meeting one evening, and the deacon said, we got all this money. When are we going to get busy with this project? I said, well, we can do that very shortly. And so we eventually did the final work on the estimates and so forth, and got the, we got to the business meeting where we were going to have a final vote on this project. And... Uh, a guy, you know, you just have to sort of be prepared for this kind of thing. A guy raised his hand. He said, well, you know, he said, uh, all that sounds really good and, and, and so forth, but uh, what's it going to cost to run this building? Have you thought really very much about the utilities and what they're going to cost? And I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> you know, like, okay, I could... Because to me, it was so self-evident that God had blessed every step of the way and sent us in all this money. And my thought was, you know, the God who sent us all this money is the same God who's going to pay those bills. Do we really have to get into this? But we had, in fact, done some consultation and some looking at those things because, it, in point of fact, it is a legitimate question. It just gets back to, again, I can't see the heart. It just kind of gets back again to the motive behind it. Is it self-serving? Or is it sincere? And even if it's sincere, it may not always mean that it's right in the sense of an actual objection. So we'll talk about next, the real problem. What, what, so if, if what I'm talking to you about, I'm proposing that it gets back to what's the real motive behind the objection. Why are we objecting? And so I want to look for a few moments at the, the real problem that seems to be the case in this instance so that we can apply it to our own circumstances and ask ourselves maybe some hard questions. See, there's an awful lot in these stories to indicate that these protests were self-serving. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 14 and look at what they say there and look at it now from this perspective. It says in verse 15, And it was evening, his disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place and the time is now past. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the village and buy themselves victuals. So it becomes pretty clear what their program is, right? Send them away. Do you, you read that too in your Bible? They're not interested. 
why might they not be interested? Well, I can think of a lot of reasons, and they're all very human, you know. I mean, in the other store, we're told they've continued now with me three days. So I could see the disciples thinking to themselves, you know, um, we've, we've done our bit. Uh, we've, we've worked with these people. Now, in this particular instance, the feeding of the 5,000, we've been here all day. It's hot. It's tired. We're hungry. You ever feel that way? I felt that way. It's, I'm hot. I'm tired. It's the end of the day. Just send them into the villages. This, isn't this enough? You've preached and, and done all these things, and, and we've we, we got to put in another two hours? So there's an awful lot here to indicate that their protests were self-serving. Um, they say in, in Mark chapter 6 and verse 35, kind of a telling phrase, the time is now past. In other words, it's, hey, we're all, you know, this is reasonable people have clocked out a while ago is sort of what they're saying, Mark 6.35, if you want the reference. Send them away, they say in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 15 at the end of the verse. They can fend for themselves. They ought to be able to do, do something. But here's where I told you earlier in the message, we find something a, a little bit telling. Um, let's go over to Mark chapter 8. This is a little something that brings a common chord out in what's going on in these two miracles because there's something that carries all the way through. If I, can get, if I can get us to see this and lead us to the next point, I think we'll be at the place where it really begins to take traction in our hearts. Um, in Mark chapter 8, so this will be after the feeding of the 5,000, this will be after the feeding of the 4,000, and yet it's going to have a reference back to them both. So that's why I say there's something that's kind of carrying forward here. Mark chapter 8, look at, with me at verse number 17, where it says, And when Jesus knew it, he saith unto them, Why reason ye, because ye have no bread? So the Lord had said to them, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Verse 16 says, They reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. And Jesus, when he knew it, it says, verse 17, saith unto them, Why reason ye, because ye have no bread? Perceive ye not, neither understand, have ye your heart, what's that say? Yet hardened. About what? Well, let's see. Having eyes, see ye not, and having ears, hear ye not, do ye not remember? When I broke the five loaves among the five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? They're sheepish now. Twelve. And when the seven among the 4,000, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? Seven. And he said unto them, how is it that ye do not understand? Why didn't they understand? Why didn't they get, gain the spiritual lesson? Why, why did the spiritual impact? Can you imagine that? And only I'm saying here, you point one finger at them, watch out, you've got three coming back. That here they are, and Jesus says, they need not depart, give ye. Do you see how this is all set up in such a way? Jesus never gave anybody anything except the disciples. Right? They brought him what was there, the five loaves and the two fish, or in the other occasion, the seven loaves and the few small fish. What did he do? After he said the blessing, he broke, and he gave it to whom? In both cases, the disciples. And you'll read that phrase when you go back and look at the story. Give ye them to eat. Why, why did he say that to him? Because 
He wanted them to be personally involved in this, to see and learn. He wanted them to be personally invested with the lesson that was, he was trying to teach. And there was a lesson in it for them. And we know there was a lesson in it for them. I'm going to get to that scripture in John chapter 6 in just a few moments. But this, this to me is the clincher. When, when I make the observation that I think that they, their, their attitude in this was, was they were raising objections more from a self-serving perspective, to me, this is the clincher right here. It shows me right now, when I read this later, it doesn't come out until afterwards. It shows me their heart wasn't in it. Their heart wasn't really right about the matter. He says, is your heart still hardened? And because their heart really wasn't right about the matter, they just, they, they, they went through the motions. This scares me to death. They went through the motions of handing out all this food and beholding one of the most spectacular, or two of the most spectacular miracles that Jesus did, and it made no impression on them, and they got no spiritual benefit from the lesson of it. Isn't that scary? Well, I say you point one at them, you got four, three coming back at yourselves because how many times has God, does thing, has God done things for us? How many times have we fainted daunting challenges and God has come through and shown himself faithful and we're right back with the same attitude and the same objections the next time something like that comes around again. And so it becomes kind of obvious that the objections that we tend to keep raising are a little insincere, a little self-serving. And I have always noticed over the years, have you? Of course, I get a lot of them just because you have to understand how I say this. I don't mean this in any other way than just factual, okay? But pastors hear them all the time. <laughs> Because of who you are, people seem to want to make excuses. And after a while, you think to yourself, yep, I've heard that sound bite before. It's almost like they're stock. People pull them off the shelf and you just smile. You know, I mean, I never let on, but I could, I could usually sense them and see them coming a mile away. It reminds me of another humorous story. It was this time, it was a man who was... A colonel, and he was in command of a particular military base. Nine of his men came to him and said they wanted to request an, a pass for the night. So he gave them the passes. They were supposed to be back at 7 o'clock the next morning. But he was not a little aggravated when it wasn't until 7 p.m. the next night that the first guy straggled in. You want to know what his story was? Here it was. He said, I'm sorry, sir. But I had a date and lost track of time. I could buy that. And I missed the bus back. But being determined to be on time, I hired a cab. Halfway here, the cab broke down. So I went to a farmhouse and persuaded the farmer to sell me a horse. I was riding to camp when the animal fell over dead. I walked the last 10 miles and just got here. Well, the colonel was a bit skeptical. But maybe the first part about he had a date rang true with something in the colonel's heart and he let him off with just a reprimand. But it wasn't too long after that the next seven came in, in a row. Same story, 
had a date, missed the bus, hired a cab, bought a horse, and so on and so forth, until finally the ninth guy came in, and he started in with the, sto the story. The colonel said to him, he said, okay, what happened to you? And the guy said, sir, well, I had this date and missed the bus, so I hired a cab. And the colonel said, wait, don't tell me the cab broke down. And he said, no, sir. He said, the cab didn't break down. He said, it was just that there were so many dead horses in the way we could only get so far. <laughs> oh, well. Like I say, sometimes they just seem like sound bites off the shelf. So let me close the message today by telling you what the real issue in these types of situations needs to be. We've seen what the problem often is, but we need to put this in some, out there in such a way that we can learn something from it and figure out where we go wrong. Sometimes these questions are real, folks, for, despite the things I may have said and despite the laughing we might have done. See, I want you to laugh because I don't want you to feel like, oh, wow, I got in there and went beat up today. It's sometimes a little easier to laugh about ourselves so that we can accept what we need to hear about ourselves. But sometimes these questions are very real. I mean, it's not a wrong question necessarily, and it's certainly a statement of fact. Where are we going to get the bread to feed all these people? Sometimes our faith is small. A lot of times our faith is small. Don't you agree? Don't you so often identify with that guy? I think he's got one of the best lines in the Gospels, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. You can't help but read that one and go away encouraged because I, I think we all really identify with that. It turns out that it's a test, as it so often is. And I said I would mention this. If we look in John chapter 6 and verse number 5, when Jesus then, John 6, 5, when Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto them, he saith unto Philip. So you're going to single Philip out, but we're getting, we're getting the, the record of it so that we get the message too. And um, he says to Philip, whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? So he poses the question to him. But look at the next verse. This he said to what? Prove him. In other words, the daunting challenge is going to show us what we're made of. How we respond is going to tell him something about where we are in our spiritual maturity and how we face the circumstances that he allows to come our way in life. It says in verse 6, And this he said to prove or to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Can you grab onto that for a minute? God already knows what it is he wants to do in your life. I think there's some comfort in that, knowing that he's in control. And then you put that with what Paul told us about, there hath no temptation or trial taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will with the temptation or trial also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. He's not going to run off and leave us. He does have something he wants to do in our lives through it. But in those times, we shouldn't be citing all the problems. The real thing that we should be doing, here's the real issue. Here's the whole point of the message today. We should be seeking to determine whether or not God is in it. See, like I told you before, when I mentioned about the building, 
The real issue never was, we can't afford it, or we don't have the money, or how are we going to pay for this, or who wants to borrow? The real issue that we were, before God, responsible to determine was, is this of God? Because once you figure that out, the other ones just all go away. Because as the five loaves and the two small fish prove, and the seven loaves and the little fishes, I sure hope they weren't sardines. Oh. <laughs> amen. Yeah, that'll get an amen from somebody. On the, on the other hand, they weren't much, were they? But you've heard this before, right? Little is much when... God is in it. See, so the real question, the real issue is not what we're facing. It's not the daunting challenge. It's not the objections. It's, is God in this? You know, in your home, that's what you have to decide, especially if you're the dad or the mom and you have spiritual responsibility. If you're in the church and you're in leadership, that's what you have to determine. Not whether or not we can do this or that because of how the circumstances look, but is God in this? Because if God is in this, he has a way of providing in the most miraculous ways for our needs because he's already determined this is something he wants to do. By the way, if you haven't already gotten this, let me just say it. Everything the disciples said was true. It was laid. There wasn't food readily available. Five loaves and two fish were only a boy's lunch. And they almost certainly did not have that kind of money, 200 penny worth. But what they were was tone deaf. They were tone deaf to God's heart. If you look at these accounts, you're going to find in both of the stories, Jesus had compassion. Let's go right back to our text, because this has to do with the heart of God. This has to do with the hardness of their heart, that they couldn't tap into that. They couldn't sense what he wanted. They weren't in step with him. Chapter 15, in the introduction to the story, after we read about all of the, the healing and so forth um, that was going on here, Um, it tells us, let me grab my verse here, Matthew 15, 32. Um, then Jesus said unto him, I have compassion on the multitude. But he didn't really have to say a whole lot more if they really wanted to be on his same page, right? Do you see what I'm trying to say? If they really wanted to be on his page, they heard enough right there to know where he was headed and what he was going to do. But he gave them more. He said, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days. So whatever food they brought, definitely gone at this point. And have nothing to eat, and I will not send them away fasting lest they should faint in the way. And right away they started with their objections. Well, where are we going to get the food? It's late. Send them away. They just... But it's like us. It's like so often we're tone deaf to what it is that God really wants. And all we can see is the glass is half empty. They wanted to send the people away. He did not want to send the people away. 
He already knew, as we read in John 6 and verse 6, what he planned to do. What he did want to do was he did want to grow the disciples' faith. Matthew 14, 26 is what I was referring to earlier. He says, give ye them to eat. Matthew 14, uh, 16, sorry. But Jesus said unto them, they need not depart, give ye them to eat. And to Philip, he said this in order to prove him. So often, beloved, we're like those disciples, and we let obstacles defeat us. Why is that? It's because we so often start from the wrong premise. We start with the premise of the problems. How much are the utilities going to cost? It's a legitimate question, but... We start from the wrong promise, premise. We start from the premise of the problems, not so much whether or not we figured out as God in this. All right, let me put it out there where you can't, you can't miss it. Twelve people went into a land that was flowing with milk and honey. Was God in that? Did God want to give them that land? Did God want to do something miraculous and good for them? He said it was a land flowing with milk and honey. Moses said, let's send out spies, figure how we're going to do this thing. They came back and 10 out of the 12 said, yep, it's exactly what God said. It is a land that flows with milk and honey. But you know what? The cities are great and walled. And the people are tall. And not only that, we saw the sons of Anak there. In other words, the giants. We saw them there. Only two said that they're bread for us. They're bread for us. No problem. We're well able to take possession of this land. Let's go. And then... The same 10 who had already confessed that the land flowed with milk and honey criticized it to the people and led a whole, the whole nation away from what God really wanted to do because they started from the wrong premise and because their objections were self-serving. Everything they said was true. The cities were walled. The sons of Anak were there. The people were great and tall. But that's the wrong premise, really. Because if God promises you he's going to give you that land and makes it clear to you that's what his heartbeat is and that's what he... And so it was the leadership of fear and not of faith. And the people followed it. I've seen that happen a few times. And you always get into trouble that way. I want to tell a little story... As we close this morning, it takes us back to a well-known name of the 19th and into the 20th century, a famous expositor by the name of G. Campbell Morgan. How many have heard the name? Okay, good, many of you have. Well, you know, eventually G. Campbell Morgan ended up in the prestigious Westminster Chapel, 
and was actually the predecessor and man who prepared for D. Martin Lloyd-Jones to come and be in that place. So we're talking about quite a, a known commodity here, British. But when he was a young man, this goes all the way back to 1888, he was with a group of 150 similar young men who felt that God had called them to the ministry and was applying for, well, I guess what we would call ordination. Well, he had no problem. He passed the doctrinal examination. But then came the requirement for a trial sermon. Well, he went into a, what could only perhaps be described as a cavernous auditorium. It was seat a thousand. Seated before him were three ministers who were going to be the ones to judge the sermon and 75 people who had gathered to listen. I can really identify with this particular story because I can remember back in the days of being in school and I always wondered about it at the time, but I guess I could see a purpose for it. They had a preaching contest every year. And both my junior, I think you had to be in your junior or senior year, both years I got to the final rounds and then they picked three. I never made it to the final three. But I can really identify with this because you go into this big building. I mean, it wasn't where you'd end up preaching if you were selected to preach in the contest, but it was big. And I'm not sure you even had 75 people there. In fact, I know you didn't have 75 people there. You just had a handful of people who were sitting and listening. They were going to basically give what they thought and pass the results along. So he got up into the pulpit and he just... He just felt like he was tongue-tied. He felt like he had two left shoes. He just felt like he had done a poor job. And two weeks later, sure enough, he got a notification from the committee that along with 104 others, so 105 out of 150, he'd been rejected for the ministry that year. Well, you can imagine, he was pretty discouraged. And so he sent a wire to his father, and he just had one word in it, rejected. Then he sat down after he sent the wire and wrote in his diary these words, very dark everything seems. Still he, that is God, knoweth best. He got a reply back very quickly from his father. His father wrote this, rejected on earth, accepted in heaven, dad. Later, Morgan commented about that event and said this, God said to me in the weeks of loneliness and darkness that followed, I want you to cease making plans for yourself and let me plan your life. See, the question never really was the rejection in the decision or the stumbling performance he put on that day, his father was smart enough to see all along that the real issue was, is God in it? And this is really all I want you to take away today. Life will be filled with many, many difficult and daunting challenges. We all know that. You can't run from it or you're not in the real world. You can't run from it. You're not in Jesus' world because just like Philip in the loaves, this he said to prove him. 
sit down, look at the problems, evaluate them fairly, but spend more of your time in prayer figuring out what it is God wants you to do. When you're convinced you know what it is God wants you to do, sally forth in faith. Don't follow the leadership of fear. It will always lead you astray. Follow godly leadership that you believe has invested its time, effort, and prayers in determining what God's will is. Because ultimately, the only place of true security is right in the middle of God's will. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness and your love. And Lord, as we hear this this morning, I just can only pray that you will speak to each of us right where we are to help us to know how we need to apply it. As I said earlier, Lord, I don't know a lot of the circumstances or background or where people are. I just know this is where we live. The daunting challenges, the objections that we so often throw up. And I pray, Lord, that you will just encourage us today, help us to get our focus right, help us to realize that you can do anything Just like the psalmist says, and just like the spiritual tells us, my God does whatever he pleases. And help us, Lord, to spend our time determining what you want us to do and then trusting you to make the provisions, to solve the problems, and to meet the objections that lie on the surface from a human perspective. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Let's just take a moment. Let me ask you a few questions just to consider for yourself. Are you citing all types of objections but haven't really taken time to pray? Are your objections sincere or are they tinged with a little bit of what's self-serving, just don't want to do it like the disciples, don't want to be challenged? Has the devil succeeded in using the negatives to get your eyes off of God? And perhaps the clincher, have you become a hindrance to the work of God because you're operating by fear, not faith? Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I might have asked a question that's good for you. I might have missed it. But I think if our hearts are open today, the Holy Spirit won't have missed it. Anyone here today say, preacher, pray for me. I just feel like I need to focus more on God and what he wants and trust him for the rest. And God has spoken to my heart today. Just include me in prayer. Would you slip your hand up? I'm not going to, God bless you. You, you, God bless you. Y'all, I'll put mine up with yours. God bless you, 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 you. Let's stand to our feet and pray together. Our Father, we are weak. You are strong. We have objections. You have solutions. But help us because we are so frail and so fragile And we don't always respond to the tests that you bring along in life 
so well. But truth be known, Lord, nobody here wants to be like those ten spies. So your dear people, many of them have expressed a burden that I'll never know because each of us has our own problems and trials and we have them as individuals and sometimes we have them as an assembly. So wherever you want us to learn from this message today, please bless us, please help us, please encourage us, please give us victory. Please help us to see through everything until we figure out what you want and then commit ourselves to it and give you all the room to run with it for your own honor and glory. We pray these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.